This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Education, Questions to be Answered. And the author is Dr. Ronald W. Holmes, and Dr. Holmes joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Holmes. Hello, Steve. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, This is going to be a journey of really digging into how to make education better. Uh, You've been described as an empowered educator with a brilliant history as a reformer and strategist whose compassion, expectation, and mastery of the art of teaching have made him a renaissance educator and change agent from his work with urban students. So that's quite a, uh, that is quite a description of you. And uh, you have uh, quite an educational background, don't you? Yes, I, I do, Steve, and be glad to talk to you, talk with you about it. Well, first of all, this book is, as you put it, it is uh, easy to read. It's a, a contextual writing style book, uh, provides answers from a positive perspective of issues like dropout rate, student bullying, parental involvement, teacher pay, academic performance, school vouchers, and more. Uh, how did you gain this kind of uh, insight? Well, tell us a little bit about your educational experience. Yes, uh, thank you, Steve. I earned a PhD in educational leadership and both a master's degree in business education and educational administration and supervision. I have worked uh, from the elementary to the collegial level. I worked in the capacity as a teacher, school administrator, and district superintendent. I'm currently a publisher and president of the Holmes Education Post, an education-focused Internet newspaper, education editor and vice president of the Capital Outlook newspaper, and national superintendent of the National Save the Family Now Movement Incorporated, an organization designed to improve public education through the creation of schools, management of schools, and the publications of articles on education. Dr. Holmes, what then motivated you to write your book? See, my brother and wife encouraged me to write weekly articles on education issues in the Capital Outlook newspaper as an outlet for positive news. Instantaneously, I received positive feedback about the articles and examples of top university and school officials cutting the articles out of the newspaper and using them for educational sem- seminars. I also received positive feedback from people requesting me to write articles on various educational topics and subscribing to the Capital Outlook newspaper so they could obtain their own copies of the articles. As a consequence, I wrote this book, Steve, using those articles as an intervention to address the problems facing public schools 
based on empirical research and best practices of school districts throughout the nation. This includes best practices for addressing students who were afraid to go to school, parents who were not involved in schools, and teachers who needed additional instructional strategies for managing their classroom. This also includes best practices for improving student performance and leadership standards for school administrators. Because of the continuous feedback or search for positive news on education, I created the Holmes Education Post to provide educators 24-7 access to weekly articles on education, educational resources, and a description of this book with information for ordering it. The website address is thehomeseducationpost.com. Well, let's now focus on the book. Uh, how can the book benefit school systems, universities, and state education agencies? Steve, the book is for all educators. School systems can use the book to learn about federal resources to support their school's initiatives, such as the Small Learning Communities Program, to establish a freshman academy program for ninth graders. This program is essential because... Over 1 million ninth graders each year fail to graduate with their peers four years later. In fact, one-third of all dropouts are lost in the ninth grade due to lack of support to help these students transition successfully to high school. In addition, principals can use the book as a resource to benchmark and learn about best practices in education, such as the framework for high-performing schools, the national leadership standards, and how to provide training for implementing these standards in the schools. Undergraduates and graduate students, professors, researchers, university administrators, education state leaders, and policymakers will find the book a useful resource to discuss cutting-edge issues in education, such as the dropout rate, student bullying, parental involvement, teacher pay, academic performance, and school vouchers. And finally, Steve, this book offers a roadmap for successful and failing schools with specific objectives, goals, strategies, and performance measures. As such, the school system can use the book as a resource to write their school improvement plans, address federal mandates, such as the No Child Left Behind. To illustrate, the objective for the school improvement plan could be to improve student achievement on standardized tests. The goal for the plan could be to improve reading and math scores above the state average. The strategy to reach the goal could be to offer an after-school enrichment academy, and the method to measure the performance could be used to do classroom observations periodically. Well, let's focus now on superintendents and principals. Uh, how can your book benefit this group? Uh, super, uh, superintendents and, and, and principals can use the book as a resource, a resource to learn about uh, federal uh, programs that can enhance uh, academic achievement. They can learn about uh, programs to help students prepare 
uh, for standardized tests. And they can learn about best practices uh, that schools are using nationwide uh, to better man manage the school system overall. Well, there's always in education persons who want to be an assistant principal or a principal. How can your book benefit them? For assistant principals, uh, this book is very unique. It provides an opportunity for assistant principals uh, to learn the uh, leadership standards for managing a school to learn the national leadership standards for writing a vision for the school, to learn the standards for developing a curriculum for the school. Principals will also learn best practices for evaluating teachers in the learning environment. And then there are policymakers. You had mentioned them. Uh, tell us about how the book would benefit policymakers. Policymakers uh, can use the book to help them determine if some policies would be applicable at the K through 12 level. For example, some policymakers in various states have decided to use uh, school vouchers as an avenue to improve schools. For example, when students are failing in a low-performing schools, they can take these state vouchers and use them at high-performing schools, even private uh, schools. One of the sections of your book regarding parents, how will your book help them? The book can be a resource to parents in regards to helping them to learn how to help their students with their, their homework. It can also uh, be a guide to parents for them to learn about uh, best practices in exemplary schools, uh, such as a parent university. Uh, this is an opportunity where uh, schools uh, will have uh, classes or courses for parents on the weekdays or af after work hours or on the weekends for parents to learn about the school curriculum, again, giving them a chance to better assist uh, their kids. In addition, parents uh, through a parent university get an opportunity to upgrade their skills and gain retraining uh, through uh, this, this model as well as uh, learn uh, how to uh, work better uh, with the teachers for improved learning. Can it help school board members? Yes, uh, this vehicle is, is designed to, to help school board members also because they play a role in making sure that the superintendents are carrying out uh, the policies for the schools. And one way to understand the, the policies is to gain <laughs> a training uh, from a parent university as relates to 
policies on school vouchers. Uh, when vouchers come to said states, it'll be good for the school boards to know the pros and cons regarding uh, vouchers. And this book uh, talks about that uh, from a research-oriented standpoint. And you say your book will even benefit college students. Yes, uh, college students can benefit from this book because they are the key players in terms of learning uh, sellable skills uh, while in college uh, so that they can go out into the world and teach our future employers the um, K-12 students. So college students can learn uh, best practices as it relates to uh, student achievement, uh, what curriculum would be beneficial uh, to prepare students uh, for college and careers, uh, curriculum such as advanced placement AP courses, IB curriculum, international baccalaureate. They will learn uh, cutting-edge issues in terms of how to in engage students uh, in the classroom and maintain engagement. And this uh, process might be through uh, collaborative pairing, uh, assigning students in group, giving them an opportunity to, to facilitate instruction after the teacher has uh, guided them through the lesson. Well, we have some time left, Doctor, uh, to give us some closing thoughts, overall thoughts about your book. Steve, this book is very enriching. The book provides empirical research uh, to support the issues in education. It is a book that is easy uh, to read. I have uh, written this book to, to support the needs of education uh, at large. This book particularly provides something for all people, such as students, uh, parents, teachers, administrators, university and community officials, by providing answers to 25 education questions from a positive viewpoint while utilizing over 80 references. The book serves as a strong means to improve public education. A description of the book can be found on the home education post uh, with information for ordering it. The site address is the homeseducationpost.com. The book can be ordered online through Opera House, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, as well as through local bookstores. The title of the book, Education Questions to be Answered, and the author is Ronald W. Holmes. Dr. Holmes, thanks so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. 
And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to women like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The First Americans Were African, Documented Evidence. And the author is Dr. David Emotep. And Dr. Emotep joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Emotep. Hello there. Well, this is going to stir up a lot of scholars and, I guess, everyday Americans because of what we believe Christopher Columbus came here, and, of course, the Indians were here. But you're saying this goes back a whole lot further than when Christopher Columbus came, and we'll get into some of those details. You say this about your book. This controversial book will change the way history will be written about the Western Hemisphere, proving the first Americans arrived in the Americas from Africa 56,000 years ago. It fills the void that has been vacant since they came before Columbus. This evidence-driven book is written to the average audience and scholars. It will be talked about from now on, and with over 700 footnotes, it serves as a guide for future researchers in this field. Well, this isn't some wild hypothesis that you're trying to prove. You've got the evidence. That is correct, sir. Well, tell us about yourself, Dr. Emotep, and why you decided to write the book. Okay, I'm a graduate of Union Institute and University uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. One of the first, if not the first, to have a uh, degree in um, uh, PhD in ancient, uh, specializing in ancient African history. Uh, during this, my dissertation, uh, I hit on several topics that were interesting that I wanted to expand upon, but were not uh, directly relevant to my dissertation. 
So I put in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something about this, and um, I started getting getting into it. Uh, 35 year, years ago, 36 years ago, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema wrote they came before Columbus, but my thesis is that Africans came before the Indians even. Well, history is very, very important, and you f- feel very strongly about history and that often uh, we are doomed to repeat the same mistakes. So uh, tell us about your view of history and how you've come to this, this uh, great conclusion. Well, of course, uh, history is one of the main courses we, we have in, um, in all academia. Uh, as you said, um, uh, repeated by me, <laughs> repeating someone else, is that, yes, we must watch history so that we do not make the same mistakes we made before, and we stand on other giants' shoulders so that we can leap forward. Um, the my thesis, my major thesis in this, that the first Americans were Africans, comes from seven uh, peer-reviewed journal articles, and there's one more on its way that um, another fellow is working on too. So very soon it will be eight journal um, peer-reviewed journal articles. So um, that would be the main thrust of, of the book and the idea. Now, who is that on the front cover? Okay, on the front cover, this is very interesting. This is a fellow from uh, Tierra del Fuego, which is the most southern tip of, of uh, South America. Um, when the, in the 1870s, when the first... Uh, uh, one of the first ships to um, go around the Horn of Africa, we have um, the CMS Bounty, uh, I'm sorry, Challenger. Um, they left England with probably the first uh, equipment that was uh, enabling people to take photographs. And they were uh, going uh, the same direction and route that Charles Darwin took. Now, they went from England to South America, which was uh, a couple months' journey. And by the time they got to the tip of South America, they put in at Tierra del Fuego to replenish their supplies of food, water, and things of that nature. When they got there, they were startled not to see the so-called red-skinned Indians, but to see Africans. And I mean Africans who look like they would just get off the boat from Africa. And uh, they took a picture of that, and that picture now uh, hangs in the Natural History Museum of London. So this is why I uh, wanted to put this picture on my, uh, on my cover so that people could see, oh, the first Americans were African, yes, and here is a picture of one of the last native, uh, real Native Americans. So how did they travel to America? Okay, um, I have a... Uh, an article called Traces of a Distance Past that was uh, um, put out in 2008 by Scientific American. And uh, it says the DNA furnishes an ever clearer picture in the multi-millennial trek from Africa all the way to the tip of South America. Okay? They have DNA uh, samples, and they have found that the people in uh, Tierra del Fuego uh, i.e., this uh, last person we, we see photographed here, have DNA roots to Africa, and the DNA 
that they found that there were that was the closest to these uh, people of ancient Tierra del Fuego would be the Khoisan, the short Khoisan people uh, who now reside in the Kalahari Desert in uh, South Africa. So who are the American Indians then, uh, you know, we see today? Uh, are, are they Asians? Okay. No, they are not fully Asian. The evidence shows that 56,000 years ago, at least at that time, the first Africans were uh, were found here in the Americas by some of the remnants that they left behind. Now, not until 3000 B.C. do we have the Mongolians, who are the Asians, come over. And the, the thesis on there was the uh, craniofacial um, skulls and uh, also skeletons and artifacts that are found. The first ones do not show in, uh, in Alaska and, and North America until approximately 3000 B.C. So, for 56,000 years, there were nothing but Africans in North, Central, and South America. And then 3000 B.C., the Mongolians come over, and there, those two people's offspring are the Native Americans. The Native Americans do not appear on this planet until after those two groups get together, starting in 3000 B.C. Now, there are a lot of mounds that are found through North America. It's always been said that they're Indian mounds. Uh, is, is, do they come from the Indians, or is there these mounds have a, a, a originate with some other uh, groups of people? Well, um, Cyrus Thomas, who worked for the um, Smithsonian Institute, uh, found that um, he said that um, the American mound bills in 1881, um, he said that, uh, quote, there was a race of mound builders in America distinct from the American Indians. Now, distinct from means that the American Indians did not build them. There is a map in my book that I've got from the um, um, permission to use from the uh, Cyrus Thomas's map, and it shows one million American mounds in North America as of 1881. And um, Cyrus Thomas says, uh, well, we, there, there is information here today that says only 100,000 of them remain. Now, that is a number that even, even boggles the mind. But there are, most of these mounds are west of the Mississippi from Maine to Florida and in rural areas that uh, have not been bulldozed and farmed over. I have pictures of some of them in my book. What about the Vikings who sailed, who sailed to America before Columbus? Okay, the Vikings, it seems, <laughs> it seems that the Vikings, uh, information that we have from them, they didn't come over until around 1,000 A.D., 1,000 years A.D., so um, they are totally out of the picture as far as being any first Americans. Even the Mongolians predate the Vikings. And then something startling to most, you talk about Egyptians building things in the Americas. Okay. If not Egyptians, absolutely people from the Nile Valley because there are structures, structures, not just artifacts. There are artifacts. There's language uh, rem uh, uh, remains. Um, uh, but the most startling things are artifacts. One is uh, a temple, and uh, it's a South American Tiwanaku semi-Turanian temple, okay, in uh, Tiwanaku, which is possibly, uh, as, a, as, as has been uh, uh, mentioned by Graham Hancock, 
in his wonderful book, uh, Underworld, shows uh, evidence that it is more than 12,000 years old, but with their, in Egypt, there's a temple in Karnak, he said, is over 13,500 years old. Um, so that's in South America. My favorite, though, is a, a uh, one mile due west of bah the Bahamas, Bimini Island, underneath the water, around 20 feet deep, is the remnants of a 600-yard megalithic block. That is very extremely large blocks, 600 yards long of a breakwater and a pier around 50 feet or so behind it that was adjacent to, at that time, the original island, Greek uh, gigantic island that was in the Bahamas. And uh, these, this is reminiscent of the pyramid blocks. They're gigantic like the pyramid blocks. They are put together uh, absolutely fabulously close so that a razor blade could not go in between, and there is no cement between, just like the Egyptian blocks. And this is, this ha this is below the water, so it had, to be, um, it had to be built before the Ice Age flooded that area. So we're going back five, maybe 10,000 years. Now, to what I'm saying here is uh, what civilization five to 10,000 years ago was able to uh, make um, transatlantic trips by boat and build in the same way that the ancient Egyptians were building? Was, it would not be the Chinese. Not the, not the Europeans, certainly not the Vikings. So that leaves one peoples, the peoples who built these type of, uh, with these type of blocks in the Nile Valley. Yeah, we always hear about the American Indians, of course, in a, that they were very primitive, you know, living in tents and just kind of nomadic often in tribes. And, and yet you are proving that this uh, uh, predates them. There was much more, much more that wouldn't be called primitive. Absolutely not primitive, especially the things that they left around that were built <laughs> using mathematics and astronomical um, um, uh, orientations. And we're talking about tremendous astronomical orientations, and some of them not only mimic but are identical to the same way that they built in, in Egypt. Uh, Dr. Emotep, now talk to us about a very controversial thesis uh, that these Africans, these early Americans, were trading, even internationally. Cortez reported that Montezuma, uh, who was the king of the Aztecs when he um, traveled to uh, Central America, was wearing a lion skin. And we all know that there are no lions, um, African lions, in the Americas. And then you look to um, um, uh, a, a pharaoh, uh, Ramses II, was, his mummy was found to have traces of, of American tobacco and cocaine in his stomach. It is surmised that he, and they saw that he had very bad dental problems, so they were probably using the cocaine to numb his teeth, and he was possibly using, um, smoking the tobacco, or it, tobacco always also has some medicinal value. But back in these days, tobacco was only found in the Americas, and, and uh, cocaine um, was only found the the leaf uh, 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 that that you can um, 
process the cocaine from was only found in Bolivia. So those are two prima facie pieces of evidence of international trade. Now, some say, well, maybe uh, that was just an anomaly of, uh, of Ramsey's um, mummy having those two things in them, just an anomaly. No, they did more research. They found 134 mummies in a museum in Europe that also had traces of cocaine and uh, this tobacco. So here we're talking about two prima facie pieces, and there are many, many more uh, um, uh, traces of, of this international trade going on far beyond the waves of Africa. Well, as one of your reviewers said, Dr. Gregory Little, uh, the author of the Illustrated Encyclopedia of, Na of Native American Mounds and Earthworks, he just simply said, what's so obvious about Dr. Imhotep's book is that what we've been told in history books about the true origin of ancient American civilization is simply wrong. So obviously your evidence is going to stir up a lot of talk and a lot of investigation. That is what I hope to do. Stir it up and correct the history that has been um, uh, maybe not falsely written, but unknowingly written incorrectly. The title of the book, The First Americans Were African, Documented Evidence, and the author is Dr. David Emotep. Dr. Emotep, tell us how to get your book. Okay, you can go to my website at historictruth.info. That is historic, H-O-R-I-F-T-I-C, historictruth.info. In other words, I write information about historic truth. Dr. Emotep, thank you for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. 
Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Essays in Idleness. And the author is R. Dwayne Seaman. And Dwayne joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dwayne. Hi. Well, everyone's really going to enjoy this because you're going to uh, share some different parts of uh, your book which point out that at one time you were project supervisor on the Apollo moonshot program. We all treasure those moments in American history back in 65 through 70. But let me read some uh, things that you've written about your book before we get into some of your uh, thoughts and, and the details of your experiences, Duane. You say this, I've written a book which includes my original poetry, my personal true short stories, my reflections about growing up during the Great Depression, my feelings about the Iraq War in China, and my experiences as a project supervisor on the Apollo Moonshot program. That's quite an array of subjects. Why did you choose to do it this way? Well, I've, uh, like, I've always been one to write down things that uh, catch my attention or of interest to me. And uh, I just decided uh, after I retired, uh, like I said, uh, I was uh, had some boredom <laughs> sitting on my hands, sort of, and I just decided to, to put all my all these thoughts that cover a lot of years into a book, and that's how it got its name, Essays in Idleness, because I was being very idle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you first started out uh, during the war. You were in the 317th Fighter Bomber Squadron. And then you say you got your first real job at the Hanford Atomic Bomb Plant. Did that kind of set you in motion to take you literally to the moon? Yes. Uh, uh, it gave me some uh, technical background. Now, with NASA, with the North American Rockwell, who had the contract with NASA, I was a project supervisor in testing the Apollo. And... Uh, uh, so I had a, somewhat of a technical background, but I was in management with uh, a North American, a supervised technicians and engineers. So you have a whole part of your book. You call it Hobnobbing with Scientists and Astronauts. Give us a couple stories that would uh, just kind of take us uh, firsthand in, into that time period. I was Hobnobbing with uh, Scientists and Astronauts. That's the title of one of my, uh, the section on the uh, uh, Apollo uh, 11, uh, <coughs> well, up, up to the Apollo 11, and I left uh, after Armstrong and Armstrong and Aldrin got on the moon. Uh, I left the space program, and 28 years later, retired as president and CEO of uh, AIM Financial Systems out of Houston, and uh, moved back to Independence, Missouri, where I'm at now, uh, because this is my roots. It's where I grew up, and uh, as I was saying, uh, it was like living in a science fiction world. It was almost ecstasy because for a dirt poor, dirt poor kid from Fairmount growing up in, during the Depression, uh, I would have never dreamed that I would have the opportunity to be a part of uh, the world's <laughs> largest uh, exploration uh, project in history. Now, were there some... Uh 
I'm sure there were some tense moments uh, during that uh, uh, period, the process of getting a man to literally walk on the moon. Uh, what can you remember that kind of stands out to you, uh, individuals or moments where uh, you'll never forget? Well, first of all, I was involved in testing uh, the Apollo. Uh, we had the world's largest uh, test environmental chamber uh, at the Johnson Space uh, Center in Houston, and our, the purpose was to test the Apollo uh, before uh, we ever put a man in it. We had a lot of unmanned tests. The, uh, the uh, uh, environmental test chamber was used to simulate uh, uh, outer space, a voyage to the moon. Uh, the idea was to put, uh, uh, once we got uh, confidence in the spacecraft itself, there were a lot of unmanned tests because we didn't want putting men in there until we were confident that all the systems and the structural uh, integrity and everything of the spacecraft was okay. So we had seven or eight unmanned tests, and we pumped out the uh, air, you know, and, and so that it would simulate uh, outer space. Uh, there's no atmosphere out there. So the first thing we had to do was get rid of the air, and then we had to cool one side of the spacecraft. It was sitting in the chamber uh, down to 250 degrees below zero, uh, and we did that with helium. <coughs> we had helium panels, and helium will boil at 268 degrees below zero. That's how cold it is. So we were able to create <coughs> a cold effect down to 250 degrees below zero, on one side of the spacecraft, and on the other side, we used artificial suns. Uh, technicians fed 40 uh, carbon rods into uh, 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 the uh, things that caused the sun to shine on the spacecraft, and it created a, a heat of 250 degrees. So that uh, we, uh, when we did put men in there. Uh, they were figuratively on their way to the moon. Now, before we actually put men in the chamber, uh, in the spacecraft inside the chamber, there was a horrible accident down at uh, uh, Cape Canaveral in which three astronauts uh, perished. Uh, they were getting ready for a flight to the moon at, at that time, and uh, that set us back about a, a little more than a year. Uh, there was a spark that somehow went off, and of course the uh, spacecraft is full of oxygen at that time, and all three astronauts died. <clears throat> and when we finally got around to putting a man in, uh, men in the uh, spacecraft in the chamber, uh, I was uh, stack supervisor, and as we closed the hatch on those guys, and they were going to be in there for eight days on a simulated trip to the moon uh, with all the conditions and everything. I couldn't get that horrible accident that uh, happened in uh, Florida out of my mind. And that accident did set us back some 21 months. But finally, we did get those guys in the chamber, and uh, then they were ready for uh, a trip to the moon. And uh, prior to that, now, we did have people that were, uh, you know, making suborbital flights uh, just up and down, uh, and we had a heck of a time trying to catch up with the Russians. We finally did and surpassed them. But I was uh, strictly involved in the testing of the Apollo. Very, very critical part of the whole success, that's for sure. Now, how many people were involved during this 
uh, time for this whole program, the NASA program, and, and all those who are working with NASA? Well, there were uh, uh, 250,000 people involved, and there were over 20,000 companies. Now, uh, NASA, the whole project is just full of big, big figures, and that's one of them. Uh, Can you imagine 250,000 people and uh, uh, 20,000 companies? It's it's just incredible. That is. That is that just shows you the ingenuity ingenuity of America and uh, the whole uh, enterprise spirit, the free enterprise spirit. Now you also take us back to the Great Depression and World War II. What are some meaningful things you could tell us that are in your book uh, concerning this uh, very very challenging time in American history? Well, more or less, it consists of that particular section consists of uh, uh, stories of, of uh, hardships that. We went through. Now, of course, everybody uh, was poor, you know, but we didn't know it because everybody else was. <laughs> and uh, for one little story that I can remember, uh, I remember when my dad uh, brought home a radio, and it was the first radio in the neighborhood, and everybody uh, flocked over to our house to hear uh, <laughs> the radio. And, of course, in those days, a uh, telephone was a party line. You know, you could pick up the phone and hear other people talking. Uh, you just picked up the phone and told the operator who you wanted to talk to, and that was it. But it, they were difficult times, but in reflection, they were very interesting times. And like I said, uh, um, I really sympathize with what my parents must have went through just to get us through it. And, of course, during World War II, there was rationing. It just seemed to never stop, yes. did it? The, the, it was, but the people pulled together. That wasn't that the feeling. Didn't you get? Do you remember that where people were pulling together? Absolutely, uh, and that's what actually, in a way, World War II got us out of the depression, uh, <coughs> with uh, because of uh, uh, trying to prepare for war, or you know, uh, actually getting involved in war. And some people think that uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, antagonized uh, the Japanese in order to, uh, uh, you know, create a reason for going to war. He seemed to know that uh, there would be a lot of manufacturing and everything that went on that would pull us out of the Depression. Whether that's true or not, it sure is, uh, whether he really thought that or not, it certainly was true. Now, you've got some strong feelings about the Columbia Space Shuttle tragedy. That happened in 1993. Explain that. Nine years ago. Uh, today, as a matter of fact. Well, when NASA and the media first announced uh, uh, the tragedy and why it happened, uh, they blamed it. On, there was when, when they launched from Cape Kennedy, there was a, a foam, piece of foam that came loose. And uh, at first they said that that was the cause of the uh, disaster. Well, that's ridiculous. And I took exception to uh, their reports immediately. Now, I was not connected with NASA in any way. These were my own personal thoughts, but I let them be known. And one year later, I was vindicated. My thoughts were, <coughs> uh, first of all, they said that it happened over Wenatchee, Texas. I'm sure you know where that is. Right. And uh, uh, they said that's where it happened because that's where all the debris and the bodies and everything were found. Well, people, don't, maybe they don't realize, but when they re-enter, and they were uh, re-entering uh, the atmosphere. 
they're coming in anywhere from fifteen, uh, ten to fifteen thousand miles an hour. Well, if it if it disintegrated over uh, Texas, the debris would have ended up probably in Georgia or something, because the inertia would have carried it that far. So that was my initial <laughs> uh, thinking: was well, something's wrong here. It couldn't have happened over Texas. And if you'll see, uh, they have pictures of uh, of what went on, videos. And there was no flames. You know, it wasn't a, an explosion. It was a disintegration. The, the spacecraft literally fell apart. And my feelings were that there were a couple of things that could cause it. First of all, there's an awful lot of space junk up there. And uh, when they re-enter, <clears throat> the pilot has a control stick, which he controls uh, the entry of the uh, uh, spacecraft, uh, either sideways, up and down, or whatever. And there's a very narrow uh, uh, corridor that they have to enter. It's uh, <clears throat> 340 miles long, approximately, and 75 miles wide. If they don't hit that corridor, they, they shoot on out into inter outer space. And if they uh, go, go too soon, it, uh, the spacecraft will fall to Earth and uh, be, be crushed uh, with uh, about a 600 uh, uh gravity things. Uh, the uh, uh, spacecraft just could not handle uh, the force of entering uh, that short. And so uh, I felt like either the pilot and the pilot husband was a rookie and uh, re-entry is so critical and he could have maybe uh, <coughs> used his retro rockets in the wrong fashion or something. Whatever it was, it caused the autopilot, which really controls reentry uh, for the most part to have a violent reaction. NASA said it was the worst ever, although it was with intolerance. Uh, it was the worst autopilot correction they ever had, which I think put a tremendous amount of stress on the spacecraft and caused it to disintegrate, not explode. And uh, <clears throat> it could have been space junk, it could have been pilot error, and whatever uh, caused the autopilot to react like it was caused such a violent uh, reaction that it tore the spacecraft apart. And as I said, uh, the film shows that there is no flames whatsoever. And it certainly did not happen over uh, Texas. It would have had to happen over the Pacific Ocean or even California for it to end up in Texas because of the inertia at 15, 10 to 15,000 miles an hour. One year later, the NASA official uh, announced that they were wrong about the foam and uh, in effect, my assumption had been right all along. Now they didn't. NASA wanted to be squeaky clean, and they would not want to admit that it could have been the pilot or anything, uh, because they were asking for 15 billion dollars at the time in federal funds. So they didn't want to even consider that at the time. But the fact is, it could not have happened over Texas. Dwayne, before we conclude, please share with us one of your poems. Okay, uh, the, the one I'm going to share is uh, "Hello, Good," uh, called Hello, Goodbye. I was encapsulated, and this has to do from birth to death. I was encapsulated in soft comfort. Now, unwittingly, I am cast out. Hello, world. Goodbye, womb. My sustaining nipple disappears, replaced by spoon-fed goo. Hello, self. Goodbye, breast. I go from crawling to standing and walk across the room. Hello, child. Goodbye, infant. Peculiar thoughts invade my mind. Strange things happen to my body. 
Hello, puberty. Goodbye, childhood. I experienced a miracle of affection, but can't explain how or why it happened. Hello, friend. Goodbye, acquaintance. Our talking, smiling, and touching eventually succumbed to passion. Hello, lover. Goodbye, innocence. I learned deceit and chicanery as heartbreak and sorrow come to pass. Hello, reality. Goodbye, fantasy. Finding a precious soulmate, I evolved to betrothed, then marriage. Hello, trust. Goodbye, doubt. Conceived and born in love, a new life blooms. Hello, ecstatic. Goodbye, apprehension. Kith and kin alike pass on as God's plan unfolds. Hello, grief. Goodbye, contentment. Winter years and ills beset me as my end draws near. Hello, infirmity. Goodbye, fitness. Our Lord gave me life. Now he takes me home. Hello, eternity. Goodbye, suffering. Well, thank you very much, Duane. Uh, thanks for sharing with us uh, one of your poems, as well as sharing with us uh, some great experiences and, and some incredible uh, insights into the shuttle uh, disaster. Uh, we want to tell everyone that your book, Essays in Idleness, uh, it can be purchased how, Bill, uh, Duane? Tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, you can get it through Amazon.com. You can get it through uh, Barnes & Noble and uh, I'm sure other bookstores. But if you'd like a signed copy, uh, and, and sales are going real well, I'm getting really good feedback. Uh, I would uh, send a signed copy if someone would like to get one from me. Uh, my, I can give you my email address. It's rdseaman.com. R-D-S-E-A-M-A-N at sbcglobal.net. If you'll email me, I'll, I'll make arrangements to get you a signed copy. Well, thank and, you. Uh, if, if it becomes a bestseller, it might be worth some money someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope it does. And, uh, Dwayne, we want to thank you again for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you so much for the time. 